Hi, my name is Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and today I'm so excited to be joined by the fantastic Cynthia Erivo to talk about her latest movie, Drift, uh, in which she plays the lead role and is also producer and songwriter on the film. And starting off, I wanted to talk about some of the work that you did in, in crafting this performance, because it's such a beautifully intricate and internalized performance that you're giving in the film. And so I was really interested in a lot of the inward work that that took in terms of looking at moments in life and kind of responses that you've had yourself even of feeling outside of a situation or, or difficult moments that you've gone through to really find how this character would respond to a lot of instances in the film. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things but because she doesn't have the, the words or the language to express or to connect the way we would normally, uh, because of the trauma that she's been through, I sort of had to dig into how you would connect if you don't have the words, how you do convey it, and and how you do almost sort of keep some of it for yourself. Um, and then I, I realised that as human beings, it's, that's what we do. We Most of our uh, connection or conversation comes without audio it's non-auditory communication non-verbal communication where where hands where eyes where breath where body we use all of those things to communicate and when you take the words away you can still understand what someone is saying if I said to you you know what I mean you know it's it's that kind of communication that she relies on because I don't know that she trusts people with the words that she has to say and I don't know that she's when you meet her, she's not necessarily ready to, to say words out loud. So you can see all of the things that she's been through. You can see the pain that she's experienced in her eyes, much like when you see a person who's experienced grief or experienced loss or pain, you, there's, there's an intangible thing about them that you can feel even when they laugh, you know? Um, and that's something that I... I take from both my own experience, I take from the experience of others who I know. I have, you know, I, I love to watch people. So there is that as well. All of that informs the way in which I, I decided to perform this particular role, yeah. Also, something I've heard you say about this role in particular as well, and that when you first read the script, that you just had this innate sense of of wanting to see the world through her eyes. Yeah. Uh, and kind of in turn, through finding your performance and also producing the film, how did you think about the way that you wanted the audience to see the world through her eyes? I I wanted people to one to see her as uh, dignified. I really wanted. I I always say this. I felt like. Jacqueline is an incredibly elegant and dignified person who has had a lot of the things that she knows ripped away from her, but refuses to let that thing disappear. So I knew that when we made her bed, it was gonna be very particular, how she lays it out, how she folds over the, the, the covers, how she puts her toothbrush down next to her cup and her lip balm and the soap and everything just so the sugar packets everything is down and put down in a, in a particular way that order is still a thing that is a part of her life that she doesn't relinquish everything she doesn't completely let go um but I also wanted to you know the way people around her just don't seem to notice her except for one or two people I that's what she's seeing I wanted the world to see that we don't notice these people that the, there are people that walk past us every day who have had big lives, 
but have happened upon a moment in their lives that doesn't represent who they are. And we sometimes don't notice them. And I hope that in seeing that through her eyes, that we might consider how we communicate with each other, how we consider one another, what we see when we see each other, you know? Yeah. I also think one of the things that captured really beautifully as well was just the importance of joy. And, you know, even at our lowest times, there's things that bring us those moments of lightness or, or make us laugh about things. Um, and so how did you set about for Jacqueline kind of finding where you wanted those moments to exist for her? Um, I was lucky because the, the script sort of gave it to her, but I also like would find, you know, on little days, I'd find like, and there was a day where we were shooting her sitting and eating like sitting and drinking a little cup of like coffee and watching this dog eating food and I part of me was like I'm really jealous that you get to have that but I'm glad you do you know and that's what's going on in my head but it's also like I wish the little moments of creating small moments of joy and even in the laying out there is the joy of how do I want my place to be and there's a moment when she finds this abandoned hotel. And I always feel relieved when I watch that moment where she finds that plastic chair, she puts it down and she just sits down with her bag and just, yeah. it's one of the first times we see her just like relax for a second. And I felt like that was like a breath. And I think when we get to feel her breathe a little bit, that feels like a little bit of joy, you know? Because for, for her, it's far and few between. And also, I guess her rem remembering moments with her sister and moments with her parents and moments at the restaurant, those moments of connection with the people that she loved, that I think, those are the things that I think keep her moving forward, yeah. And that's such a great point, too, because it also really explores the way that memory can be such a visceral experience and it goes in both directions. There's moments where it's a trigger for her and then there's moments like that when she has the memories of her family and her girlfriend and, and all of those details. And obviously the script kind of gives you the ins and outs of when those moments are happening. Um, but how would you kind of like track that for yourself and kind of figure out what the emotional response in the present would be? Well, because what happened was we shot all of those moments, the family um, and like the very beginning of meeting her and her family when she comes back from London. Um, we shot London. We shot um, the terrible massacre that happens in the house all first. We shot it all first so that all of those memories were, were in my head all the time. So when I'm on the beach and I'm, and I massage, and she massages the, the the lady's feet. I already have the memory of me massaging my sister's feet in my head. And you know, when when those uh, poppers go off, I already have the memory of the sound of the guns going off in the house. I have, I can, I, I'm, I'm remembering all of those. When I run outside from the apartment, I have the memory of me running from the house because those those things happened before we shot everything else. And I think that was the that was a really important, helpful thing for me because it meant that I had a stock of memories already before we went into the rest of the body of the film. So that for me, they were already interstitched into the entire making of it from then on. Yeah. That's, that's such a gift to be able to do it in that order. And, uh, 
I also want to talk about the physicality of the role as well, because there's obviously just a natural tension that she's holding in her body with everything that she's emotionally carrying. And it's not that it's fully released by the end, but we see kind of like these little moments where she becomes a little bit less guarded and is able to open up. There's a the physical journey of that as well. And so how do you find those details for yourself? I, I kind of think it was instinctual, you know? I, I don't necessarily think I, I track where I'm going to hit here. I'm going to have my shoulders up here. I'm not... I think just within what's going on, my body just reacts to what's happening, right? Um, when I'm sitting with with Callie or sitting with Alia, I feel she feels more relaxed. She has, but when she first meets her, this she's learning to trust this person. She doesn't know her, so the tension is up here. But also, she sees how this person is dealing with other people. So there is a sort of like, I'm curious, who is this? You know. I don't know that it was like a a conscious thing. I think it just was a natural bodily reaction. I'm lucky to be connected to my body in that way. So it just sort of comes through. Yeah. Speaking of working with Alia Shawkat, there's so many beautiful scenes where it's really just the two of you kind of going back to what you were saying at the, at the beginning about not always needing the dialogue between these two characters. And yet there's so much communication throughout and it sounds like that was kind of a very natural thing for the two of you between takes and between scenes as well. So how did you kind of take the, the non-verbal communication that you were developing off screen into the way that you would film those moments? She's really, I think when, when you get to do those scenes with a person who is open and who, she's got such a beautiful emotive face. So when you do get to work with a person who's like that, it's kind of, it's kind of wordless. You don't really need to do very much except for be there and pay attention and listen the wonderful thing about conversation is it's never really about you it's always it's always about the person who's speaking or communicating so for me my I would just pay attention I would just listen <laughs> I would just respond to what she gave me and then hopefully I would give her something that she could could respond to and and, and that's really as simple as it was because she's so um uh she, I guess I don't know a word that I could use for switched on she's very switched on so that it's quick, you can get what you need from her quick and she can get, and she can pick something from you immediately. So I, I just, and I trusted her implicitly as well. I really trusted her. So I think that's why it was just easy to to flow with her, I guess. And with her character, Callie, you know, as an audience, we understand why this is someone that Jacqueline starts to, to allow into her space because she's not trying to ask her to bring her walls down. She's allowing Jacqueline to be the one to gradually open the door. And so kind of like, how how did you feel like that was such an important thing to kind of like find those little beats where she would open the door with never being forced to go there when she wasn't ready? Yeah, I think we we understood that the trauma that Jacqueline had gone through was hers to release, not someone's to take. And so we knew that it was like a, a delicate dance that we would do. So these conversations that we had, these like conversations, it, there was always caution with it, this like push and pull. We knew that that was like a dance that we were gonna be be doing. Um, and I think it was really important that we both knew from the beginning, Callie is not trying to save uh, uh, Jacqueline. Jacqueline is not asking to be saved. Both of them need each other because they are experiencing a loneliness that neither one of them really understands. 
but they understand their own experience, right? They experiencing it in very different ways. Callie has come from a marriage that doesn't work and she's now alone. Jacqueline has come from this horrible trauma and has ended up in this place where she is alone. And the both of them have an understanding in that. And I think because we find common ground there, it takes a while. We we exist with that first. And, and knowing that we both carry this, I think Callie has an understanding that this person has been through something. And I think she senses this person has been through something. I don't know what it is, but I'm curious to stick around because this person isn't pushing on me. This person isn't forcing me to do anything. We are able to exist in the same space in quiet, which I don't know that Jacqueline has ever experienced. Um, and I think for the first time she feels seen. And I think that's the that's the thing that happens when she meets uh, Callie for the first time. It's the first time someone sees her, like notices that she's there. And I think that that's just like a, I want to continue to be seen. Yeah. And there's yeah. some kind of like wonderful interactions that the two of you have, have created. And one of my favorite moments is when Kelly kind of like comes in as if she's going to try and hug Jacqueline, immediately senses, okay, not right now. Mm-hmm. And when it feels comfortable, she kind of gives you a hug from behind. And I was just interested in how the two. That happened by accident. That happened really naturally. Like I, Cynthia, knew that if I got a hug immediately, I would cry right there and then. And I wasn't ready to go there yet. Uh, uh, like the lines merged. And Alia, Callie just read the, read the signal. So, you know, when, when that happens, she, there's just something, my, your, my heart broke at that moment. You sort of like, I can't continue to do this anymore. I cannot hold on to this anymore. And when Callie comes into that space, she gets to see what's really going on. And there's sort of like, this is what I'm going through. And um, there's sort of like a, there's a moment before she comes into hug where it's like, this is, this is it. And, and that hug, it's like, I don't want pity. I really don't want that, but I do want comfort. And when it, when she's ready to let go, comfort can come. And that's, that's sort of how we measured it. Yeah. And when they first meet, Jacqueline is kind of going with her line that she'll often say, you know, I'm here with my husband. And my husband. Um, did you have conversations with Anthony Chan about, you know, how believable do we want the, the delivery of this to be? Do we want it to be something that she knows she's lying and she kind of knows other people won't believe it? Or, you know, we really want it to feel very truthful so people believe it at first on the surface. Yeah, I, I didn't necessarily have a big conversation with him. I just sort of sensed that she has used this line a lot. This is like the line that she goes to, it's that or the journalist. That's, you know, because she knows what she has. She knows what she sounds like. She knows she doesn't look necessarily completely out of place. So she can use this line. Um, I mean, she doesn't have a ring on. There's nothing about her that says she's mad. You wouldn't think, you know, the assumption is not that. But I think she knows that a woman who is married will be left alone. And we won't ask too many questions. I can just put it on someone else. Someone else has all the answers. I don't have the answers, so I don't have to give them to you. Um, and I, I assumed that she's used the line enough, but I don't even think she's trying to hide that it's not the truth. 
I don't think she's trying to convince someone that that's true. But I do think that she knows that a person doesn't won't necessarily ask any more questions after that. That's what she said. I don't think Callie believes her when she says it. But I do think Callie allows her to just say what she needs for herself. I think. I, I never believed that Jacqueline bought into the fact that I don't think she ever thought Callie believed her. I think there was an innate understanding between the both of us that this is not true, but I am not ready to have the conversation with you about what's going on. I also like with, with Jacqueline that it, it captures that element of things that were very much everyday experiences for her that now because of what's happened to her has been completely stripped away. So the act of sitting in a restaurant is something that she yeah. would have time and now you and so be what what was the feeling that you wanted to create when she has these experiences that she no longer has the access to as a day-to-day experience anymore regaining her dignity you know that moment she walks into the the restaurant and she's turned away and before she leaves she says i might come back later you know for the for the table uh it's because those things strip a person of dignity. A person won't let you go to the bathroom because they don't think that you're you're the kind of clientele they want. It takes away her dignity. And what she does is try to rebalance that so that she doesn't lose the dignity that she's holding on to. There's a, it, it's like a shred of it and, and, and it can be taken away at any moment, but she, she upholds those things that will keep her um, dignified, you know? She won't argue with the restauranteur, but she will let them know that I might be back. And I know the game of a restaurant. I know what what needs to be said, what conversations can be had at a restaurant for a table to be booked. Yeah. I also wanted to ask about the scene on the bus where um, she's kind of, Callie catches her going through people's bags, looking for sanitary products, because it feels like that was kind of a shifting moment as well. But I'm also not being judged. Yeah difference for her and so for you what was what was the shift in that moment for Jacqueline I think that uh it's when when Callie doesn't ask any questions and and just gives her the things she needs without any question asked it could there's a moment where it could have shifted in one direction where it could have been desperately embarrassing desperately painful but I think Jacqueline gets to see that this person cares enough to also help uphold her dignity. I care enough to not allow you to feel embarrassed in this moment. Um, and I think it it cracks her open just a little bit. It makes her trust this person just that touch more. It's why she stays. So she doesn't go away immediately. Yeah. I also wanted to ask about Jacqueline's costume, you know, in the present day setting in Greece, because, you know, going back to that idea that you were talking about where it's like, there's a lot of like dignity and pride in how she presents. And we see her kind of like washing it. And it's clearly that's part of the routine every day. night. Um, But she's in the same outfit the majority of the time. And so what were the conversations that led to the decision of what is it that she's going to be wearing? Um, because of where she was, what you would be able to find. And I still, I wanted something that still felt, um, it wasn't not necessarily fancy, but it's like she's picked these pieces that feel good the, as best as she could, you know? Um, like a, the, this red scarf that like, it's automatically, I'm dressed up now because I have my red scarf on. I, I'll wear it a certain way for dinner or if I'm going somewhere, I'll wrap it around once. 
And it's separate items that make the difference uh, about her. She doesn't have much, but it's the difference between whether I tuck the shirt in or whether I leave it out. Uh, when she is in the gray t-shirt, I chose that there was, chose to tuck in the t-shirt because I wanted it to be tidy. It was as much as we, it might be worn, but it needed to be tidy. I didn't want anything to be, to have any holes in it or to be, um, uh, to be disheveled because I knew that this person would take care of the pieces that she has because there's very little of it. So I wanted her to, to have pieces that weren't necessarily new, but weren't worn completely, that they were still taken care of, you know, no holes, no anything like that, still tidy, still put together as much as you possibly could be. Yeah. And and in jumping over to the the bathtub scene between the two of them, which is the moment that Jacqueline finally does find the words and and the way to communicate what's happened. Um, I thought it was so beautifully written because it's written kind of not A to B. It's fragmented in the way that memory exists and the way that we express trauma. Um, So especially with what you were saying, having already filmed the scene where she's seeing everything that happens to her family in front of her, um, how did you set about going into a scene like that? Because it's such a pivotal moment for the film and for her as a character. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I just remembered what was going, what had gone on when we shot it for this bath scene. Um, I use uh, music sometimes to uh, get me to the, the edge of something. So I'll find a song that connects me to uh, her pain, sadness, uh, and then the rest is sense memory um and there's something very vulnerable about sitting in a bath naked uh in front of a person there's nothing to hide behind um and and that's where I was so everything is exposed uh and and I sort of just allowed myself to feel all of that yeah yeah Speaking of music as well, I want to talk about the song that you've written. It's it's a stunning song, and I love I love the way that it kind of came together very organically, where it wasn't something that you were planning, but you were listening to the song "Father" by Laura Mavula, and you were like, "This is the essence of what I want." And then we ended up co-writing the song together. Um, and so, what what was that essence and that first idea you had of like, "This is what I want the feeling to be at the end of the movie through music"? I because there's this because it was the song "Father," the song "Father." made me automatically think about the relationship that she has with her own father. It, I just I just kept remembering it. And I knew that the first line of that last speech was he, I was so mad at him. Like that, that con, that, that, you know, weird juxtaposition of, I love this person, but I'm disappointed and I'm mad at him, but I can't believe I was mad at him and now I don't have him, all of those things. And I felt like this particular song just embodied the whole thing. And whenever I listened to it, it would make me cry. So I was like, I, I understand that this person, Laura Mvula, understands the connection to pain and the connection to to wanting to move forward. And I just knew that she understood it. Even just like the sound of it felt right, you know? Uh, Just the way she uses her voice, the way she uses instruments, the way she uses sound felt really right. So I I just asked her. And I couldn't get it out of my head as well. So I was just like, this is, this has to be it because I can't, I can't shift it. And in, and in producing this film, it sounds like there were a lot of, you know, 
a, a lot of balance in terms of just the space that you were having to find internally for your performance throughout the day. And then all of a sudden diving into conversations about scheduling and, you know, this happening, so we need to adjust this and we need to do this. Um, and so I was just interested in, in kind of the learning curves that you experienced producing your first feature, but also the importance of, is it Salome or Salome? Salome, yeah. Your producing partners. Salome was a superhero um, who went on this wild ride with me and I don't know if I could have gotten through it without her. You know, when, when we're shooting that scene at the beginning of the film, um, the, 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 the massacre that we shot at the very top of this uh, shooting schedule, there were days that I, I couldn't be the producer. It just was impossible for me to be a producer when dealing with some of these things. So she would step in immediately and be my voice, be her voice, and make sure that she was a representative for, for, for the team that I needed. Um, but the learning curve uh, is that I would do it again in a heartbeat, um, that it is difficult, um, but that doesn't, but now that I've done it once, I am not afraid to do it again. Um, and to make sure that you keep a team, because we were lucky, we had a great team around us. We had a good team. Uh, and to make sure that you that if you're going to do something like that, you need a good team. If you don't have a good team, things can fall apart. And and we were lucky because we had we had a good team who cared just as much about it as we did. Yeah. And with producing and kind of the way that you wanted to tell this story as well, um, I loved hearing you reference stubbornness as like a really positive quality because you know, it, it can be and that it was stubbornness that made you feel like I'm not going to tell this film any other way than the way that it needs to be told. And I know it needs yeah. to be told. Um, and so I was interested in how that was just a really helpful driving factor on a project like this. Because when you're stubborn, like I am, you you just don't take no for an answer. You just, you there's no, there was no way in my mind that this was not going to happen. I knew that I needed this film to be on a screen I needed it to be off the script and on the screen in film and I no one could have told me it was not going to work I was going to do everything I could possibly do in my power to help to put it to make it come to fruition and I think that's the thing that stubbornness helps that you you can't be told you can't be told no now let's be honest sometimes stubbornness can be an absolute detriment it really can like if you're not well and you need to sit down and be still, then you probably should listen to, turn the stubbornness off and just listen. But for something like this, I really needed it because it allowed my drive to keep going. That nothing would uh, would sway my, my idea of wanting to make this happen. And having a great team who wanted to go on this ride with me was also imperative, but I was prepared to go through whatever we needed to go through to make it, to make it work, yeah. Well, I, I first had a chance to see the film at Sundance and then even re-watching it again, there's so many more tiny details that, that you pick up on. So it's such a stunning film and congratulations, Cynthia. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you.